May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. wonder if you have heard of the Kingdom of El Or. Kingdom of El Or. Founded in 1944. And it's... Uh, a small island located off the coast of Denmark. It's not a real kingdom. It's not a real nation. It's one of those micro-nations. And other nations don't recognize it, but a group of people got together on this island and declared it the kingdom of El Or. They issue their own coins. They have their own stamps. They keep their own time. El Orian Standard Time, which is like 12 minutes, I think, ahead of Danish time. The current ruler, uh, surely you've heard of King Leo III, the ruler of Elor. Well, you can be forgiven if you haven't heard anything about this before. Um, but, um, you know, these, this group of citizens of Elor, they gather only once a year on this small island. And when they're on the island, they do abide by the rules of the island. And they're under the benevolent rule of King Leo. And they use the currency, and they use the stamps, and they keep the time that's on that island. But once they're off the island, all that goes away, and life goes back to normal. It's as if that kingdom doesn't really exist. Well, I'm using that as sort of a lighthearted example to make a serious point that sometimes I think we're tempted to treat the kingdom of Christ like that. That worship is something that I do, on Sunday morning together with my brothers and sisters in the church, the service that I uh, give to God is something that has to do with the church. I go to church to serve God. If we fall into that mindset, though, there's this disconnect between the reign of Christ and then the rest of our lives. And the Scripture is clear that Jesus is Lord and for His followers, Jesus is to reign over every area of our life and all of our life is to be an act of worship. And that, I think, is the dominant thought as we get into chapter 13 of Hebrews. That we live under the kingdom of Christ and every realm of life, we ought to see it as a service of worship to the King. Now, the reason I say that, I think this is the dominant thought leading into chapter 13, is because of where the author left off last time. Remember, he talked about this kingdom, verse 28, that cannot be shaken. Preached about that last week. That we are receiving, as Christians, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken, and then let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. So he's surely going to talk about what prayer book we ought to use in order to have acceptable worship. Or the kind of music that is acceptable worship. Or what the priest or pastor should be wearing when he presides. No, those are valid questions, but if we narrow our understanding of worship to what just happens on the Sunday morning, we have a very constricted view of what worship and service to God looks like. And so what he's going to do in chapter 13 is he's pinpointing areas of this community that he knows very well. He's in a pastoral relationship with them. 
Um, and he's going to pinpoint areas in their life together that need to be brought under the reign of Christ and seen as an act of worship, a sacrifice of praise. And he starts with relationships within the body of Christ. Relationships that ought to be characterized, he says, by brotherly love. Verse 1, let brotherly love remain or continue. Let Philadelphia remain. That's literally what it says in Greek. And philos, the, the Greek word for love, means a warm affection, tender affection for another person. And in the church, in the body of Christ, between brothers and sisters, there needs to be this warm, tender expression. And where that happens in the church, where there's that kind of glow of love, it it sort of radiates and permeates the body of Christ, and it's very attractive. And people want to be part of a community where that Philadelphia, that brotherly love, is permeating the church. And that's not happening in the church when there's coldness and rifts in relationships. Of course, it's, it's off-putting. And it's not a representative, representative, representative at all of what Christ would have us uh, to do and, and how we ought to live together. But these Christians that he's writing to, they have this brotherly love. He just, he's saying, I want you to remain in this and to, to keep it. And then he's going to talk about some practical ways that they can express this brotherly love. And it has to do with uh, hospitality and remembering those in prison. In this context, the group that he's writing to, he wants them to express brotherly love, and then he thinks about, under the inspiration of the Spirit, how they can do that. And so he talks about hospitality. Verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Of course, in the early church, hospitality was so important especially as Christian leaders were moving from town to town, village to village, preaching the gospel. They didn't have a hotel to stay at. They didn't have a travel budget. They depended upon brothers and sisters in the community to take them in and to supply their very basic needs of food and shelter and to provide this base of operation. So for Christians in the early church, hospitality was essential as they were visiting and as they were moving about. We might not have the same sort of desperate need for hospitality in America to provide for basic needs, but there is a need for hospitality in our culture today, isn't there? There's emotional needs, there's loneliness in our culture, there's disconnection from one another, and one of the things that the church has to offer to the world is hospitality, inviting people in to our homes. In our Gospel lesson, Jesus says, don't invite those who can scratch your back. Don't invite those who can reciprocate, but also invite those who are at the margins, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Christians are called from the lips of Jesus all the way through the epistles to that kind of hospitality. That's a practical way that we can express this brotherly love uh, to one another. And then he talks about visiting those in prison. And again, very relevant in the first century and in this, uh, to this group that he's writing to because um, as we talked about last time, based on Hebrews chapter 10, we saw that some of them had been imprisoned, most likely because of their faith. 
And so he says, I know that they're no longer with you now. They're in prison, but don't forget them. Don't neglect them. Remember to visit them. And he says, remember, you're also in the body. They're going through difficult physical times in prisons. First century prisons, I don't think, were a very pleasant place to be. And I believe that in some cases, friends and family had to visit the prisoners just to give them some basic necessities. And so he's saying, don't forget those who've been imprisoned for their faith. Something for us to remember, maybe in a, in a broader context, in a global context, as brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, various places are being imprisoned for their faith. Let's not forget those who are suffering in prison and being mistreated because they bear the name of Jesus. These are practical ways that we can show brotherly love. And when we demonstrate that in the body of Christ, when we seek to serve one another, it's a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord. In fact, at the end of our passage today, notice that uh, we, we're kind of cut off at verse 8, and then he goes into uh, 9 through 14. He's talking about a false teaching that's making inroads into the Hebrew into this community. And the false teaching had to do with um, a way of treating food and celebrating and feasting. It had to do with uh, an idea that by partaking in certain ritualistic meals or partaking of certain foods, that will bring them closer to God. So he tries to to deal with that in 9 through 14. And then he says in verse uh, 15, let let him then, uh, through him, rather through Christ, not through some sort of ritualistic meal, but through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So doing good and sharing what you have is an act of sacrifice, of praise, that pleases God. And so whether you can sing in the choir or not, or whether you get the solo in the choir or not, or whether you can stand behind a pulpit and preach, or, or whether you can compose a hymn or not, you can bring a sacrifice of praise to God by doing good to others, by expressing brotherly love in practical ways. And that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what needs to be, that's one of the areas that needs to be under the rule and reign of King Jesus, our relationships with one another. So thankful that in this church we have people who really that, they have honed in on that area of ministry. All of us ought to do this, but they really have raised the bar high and they challenge me because their, their goal is to look out for other people in the congregation who are in need. And they'll call and they'll say, I know about this need. I know about the situation. How can I help? And they're offering up this sacrifice of praise that's pleasing to the Lord. And so all of us need to be doing that together so that our relationships in the body of Christ are under the Lordship of Christ. Well, then he gets even more personal. What could possibly be more personal than sex and money? That's where he's going next. So that's where I'm going to go. See, this is the good thing about trying to be a biblical preacher. I just go where the Bible goes. I don't have an agenda. I'm following this word. So here he goes. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, unspoiled, not contaminated. You see, adultery causes uh, the marriage bed to be spoiled, defiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This is, of course, uh, an area of the Bible that pushes against our culture, but it pushed against the first century culture as well. The, the consistent message of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that sex is a gift that God has given in marriage, for marriage, between a husband and wife. And anything outside those boundaries is sexual immorality. This is God's design for marriage. It's a great gift, sexuality. But God has a design for this gift. And when we go against God's design for this gift, what happens when you break the design? Well, brokenness results. And that's what we're seeing in our culture today. A lot of brokenness over this issue of sexuality and sexual expression. Um, Emotional pain. Uh, Brokenness in terms of marriages. Broken families. Broken bodies. The spread of disease. An increase in abortion. All these ills are related, or many of them are related to people who have said, I'm not going to honor God's design for sexual expression, but we're going to go our own way. And so I think, you know, the author here warns of a judgment to come. I think part of the judgment now is the brokenness in the world. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I think some of these consequences that we're seeing now, the fallout now, is part of the judgment of God. And it's a warning of greater judgment to come for those who just continually reject God. In this area and other areas of life, there's grace, there's repentance, there's restoration. But here he's warning very clearly about going against God's design for sexual expression. So there's a lot of brokenness. I heard a quote this week that I really like. It it says, "A, a, a broken heart, though, is an open heart. And in the culture, there's a lot of broken people over this issue. But that also means there could be a lot of open people who long for cleansing and healing and redemption and to see a model of healthy family and healthy marriage. And that's what we should be. That's what we should offer as a church to a world that really is is confused about these things and rejecting God's design to be able to be a model in our churches of healthy marriages and families. To offer that as an alternative. To offer the world that sort of wholeness and health. It's a responsibility and a high calling for those of us who are married and for those who are single to live faithful to Christ under His rule and reign in this area of their life. So he gets personal on the matter of sex and then he reaches into our pocketbook and takes a look at our bank account. Keep your life free from the love of money. Well, how do we do that in a world that says, I mean, what you need to do is have more, acquire more to be happy. I mean, these are the two great idols. Isn't this... Interesting, in the first century, I mean, those who don't want to follow God often have two major idols, sex and money. And here they are right here in the first century. Those are what displace God, people looking for their satisfaction and security in these idols, and it continues on today. 
So he says, you need to learn to be content with what you have. Keep your life free from the love of money. And the way to do that is to be content, to learn contentment. That will help us fight against the love of money. Or the the thought that if I just had something more, it would satisfy me. The secret to fighting against that is to practice contentment. Now, in one of his books, John Ortberg uh, talks about this principle of contentment. And he uses the great saint Snoopy as an example for how to battle for contentment. Snoopy was in his doghouse one Thanksgiving, and he was complaining. He was discontent because he was on on top of his doghouse, and while the humans are inside enjoying their Thanksgiving dinner, they get the turkey, they get the the mashed potatoes and gravy, and and the pumpkin pie, and he's complaining to himself. And then finally he gets to the realization, he says, It could be worse. I could be the turkey. (laughs) It could be worse. And John Orpik says, that's what we need to say to ourselves a lot of times. You know, you get into your car and you kind of want something better. Instead of saying, oh, I I need to buy a new car, just be content with what you have. It could be worse. You want a bigger house? Go into your house, he says, and, and say to yourself, it could be worse. He says, wake up in the morning, look at your spouse. He could, no, he doesn't say that. That's not, that's not where we should go. Be content with what you have. And, and, and the reason, ultimately, is what follows. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do we really, really believe that Jesus is enough? Do we believe that the Lord is enough? That he is our ultimate satisfaction and security. Because as the author of Hebrews has been saying again and again, he wants to have this eternal perspective. He wants those who are reading this letter to have an eternal perspective. That we have a city, we have a kingdom that's unshakable. We have a city of God that we're going to inherit that's imperishable. And all the stuff that we think is so important in this life isn't really going to matter a minute after we pass away. It's not going to matter. What we've done with it will matter. How we've used it will matter, but the stuff itself, not going to matter in light of eternity. And so, can we say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. He will never leave me or forsake me. Rich or poor, he's with me. Let's submit to Christ in this area of our life. So he's talked about relationships with one another, and he's talked about these personal areas, and now he's going to... uh, and I'm just briefly going to touch on it, he, he talks about the church and church leadership. And he says in verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It seems what has happened is that the leaders who were, uh, who were maybe founding members of this community, or these group, these, this, this group of Jewish Christians, they have passed away. So he's saying, remember them, and uh, the reason that they were leaders, the reason they had authority in the church is that they spoke the word of God, and not only did they speak the word of God, they lived out the word of God. They walked the walk. They walked out what they talked, and that is a powerful witness and a challenge to people, um, of course, like me. 
But remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider their outcome, the outcome of their way of life. Isn't that interesting? Look at how people live who are following the word of God. Think about it. Consider it. Is it a fruitful life? Is it a good life? Is it a wholesome life? And then compare that to people who do not live their life according to the word of God. Consider their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he says this, and this is probably, I think, the most famous verse in the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we quote that, but the context here is the church and church leadership. And I think what he's saying is those pastors, those leaders are gone now, but Jesus is not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the same today as he was in the first century. And if we keep Christ at the center of our church fellowship and his word, the authority of our church, we can be guaranteed that his presence will be with us. If we displace Christ, if we shove him off the throne, then we have a Christless church. And we have a social club and not a church where Christ is ruling and reigning. So what sets the agenda for the church is the word of Christ, the word of God. These leaders were leaders. They had authority. They had standing in the community because they taught the word of God and they lived it out. That's what sets the agenda for the local church. The word of Christ, keeping Christ at the center. Not the culture's agenda. That does not set the agenda for the church. Not the pastor's agenda. Not church tradition, what we've done in the past. That shouldn't set ultimately the agenda. What should set the agenda is the word of Christ. The life of Christ. And that's how we ought to serve him in the church. Under his rule... And he rules by his word. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, brothers and sisters, three areas to consider. And just ask yourself this morning, am I living under the rule and reign of Christ in these areas of my life? Are we as a congregation submitting to the rule and reign of Christ in the area of personal relationships in the church? How am I doing helping out my brother and sister in need. It's challenging. But this is what God is calling us to. How am I doing in these areas of sex and money? Is, is, is Christ really the Lord of those areas of my life? Are His priorities when it comes to money my priorities? Am I using the resources that He's given me for His glory? Am I hoarding? Am I trying to keep up with the Joneses? Or do I have God's perspective on money? Do I understand that the priority of the church, of the local church, the agenda of the local church is set by Christ himself, the word of God? There was a a sculpture who um, made a a, a sculpture of Jesus Christ and people came from all over to see this sculpture. They wanted to behold the grandeur and tenderness of Christ. They knew this sculpture had a great, um, the sculptor had a great reputation. And when they arrived, visitors would come and they would, they would just kind of circle around the statue of Christ, but they couldn't quite glimpse the, the, the grandeur of it. It just eluded them. And so, invariably, they would go up to the sculptor and say, how do we see this rightly? I mean, they knew that he was going to bring something special out because of, that was his reputation. But they just couldn't see it 
How do we see Christ rightly? And he said, there's only one way to behold Christ, this statue. You have to kneel. You have to kneel. You have to kneel. You have to bow down to see who Christ is. Christ, the Son of God. Christ, the living Lord. Christ, who will come again as judge of the living and the dead. Christ, who is the head of the church. We're called to submit to Him. And when we do that, we'll see Him rightly. And everything else will be aligned correctly under His Lordship and reign. Let's pray. God, I pray that You help us to do that in our lives. And help us to reflect on these areas that have been touched on in this book of Hebrews. Help us to examine our life and to admit and to repent when we are... Um, when our attitudes are more influenced by the world than Your Word. Help us to acknowledge and repent and by Your grace help us to amend our life in a way that gives You glory so that our whole life would be an offering of praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.